This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run, and the sixth edition of the book is out wherever books are sold. So please get a copy. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services and that Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. Professor, what a week. We've been saying how this was going to be such an important week for the markets. You've got earnings, the Fed, the employment report, all sorts of stuff. Um, looking forward to getting your reaction on what is happening. Well, today was a shocker. I'll, I, I will tell you. Um, uh, coming in at 517 plus, um, uh, almost triple expectations, um, across the board household, uh, also very, very strong. Um, uh, it, 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 it very much surprised me and everyone else. I, I, I think another shocker that in the same direction, was the sharp upward uh, movement in hours worked uh, from 34.3 to 34.7. Actually, uh, 34, they revised it. It was 34.3 the previous month. And they were, uh, December, they revised at 34.4. But a three-tenths increase uh, matches the biggest increase we've ever had in that series in over 25 years. I mean, if you, if you, uh, uh, I mean, that's almost a 1% increase in hours, which is over a million new workers if you just look at the hours alone. So it, it's a blowout, uh, report. Um, uh, now where, 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 this is the puzzle to me. How can you have such a blowout report and still have people estimating that GDP in the first quarter is coming in at 1% or maybe 1.5%? I mean, this report, now again, it's only for January and we, we have February and March, but this report in and of itself is almost like a 5 and 6% annualized first quarter GDP. Um, no one's predicting it. So uh, now one of the explanations, uh, not a pretty explanation, is another collapse of productivity. So, you know, even though we have many, many more hours worked, uh, the output per hour has gone down. Now, we remember we suffered dramatic, uh, I think, a record first the first quarter productivity data from last year was a record le- uh, negative number. But but that was also um, uh, followed the Omicron crisis, and there was some reason why uh, there might be that record number, although the second quarter was also followed by a very poor productivity number. This one, uh, why productivity could fall so much, and again, that's if GDP comes in and in the in the in the one and a half and two percent range, and again we have to also look at what happens in February and March. Maybe this will be revised downward. Maybe February and March will be much less. But certainly, uh, this uh, this surprised me. Um, uh, we had the service sector also jumping back up to the mid mid fifty to uh, sixty range, fifty five last month. If you remember, everyone was surprised it fell from 55 to 50 after being at that level for a long time. Well, it seems to have jumped back up. Most people actually commented on the fall is more consistent with the PMIs and, and the, the purchasing managers report on the, on the, uh, are, are coming in below 50. I mean, we had the, uh, the S and P global U S services and composite coming in at uh, 46.8 just, uh, this morning. So that's still below that's still in contraction mode um, on on those uh, PMI reports. I would put the service sector in very modest 
um, uh, expansion mode. Um, now, um, uh, in and of itself, this, of course, supports a more aggressive Fed. Let's dial back a couple days to the Fed. Um, uh, I thought that Chairman Powell was more balanced. He was open to um, a, a two-way. Uh, he said, we're going to let the data come in and tell us, I think, a couple more uh, uh, hikes are appropriate, but he wasn't absolutely adamant. Uh, I was also very pleased that he's using uh, the core rate minus rentals. As you know, we have been pointing out for months, if not years, how distorted the rental uh, price data is in the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And he seemed to acknowledge it and talked about, uh, you know, the core rate X rentals uh, as trying to um, uh, concentrate on one part of uh, the economy that has uh, so far, according to him, been resistant to the slowdown uh, of inflation. So that's good. He's not going to add the rentals that are going to continue to rise in the CPI, as we know, for many months to come because of the averaging delayed averaging action there. So I, I was pleased to see that recognition. I was pleased to see more flexibility. And the market was pleased to see that, and, and several reporters brought it up, you know, stock market went up quite a bit in January. Uh, long bonds went down. Are they all wrong? He did not say, I'm, I'm second, you know, that the market is wrong. Remember, he started pushing back on markets uh, back in Jackson Hole uh, last August and in, in continued commentary saying they got it wrong or basically saying they got it wrong. He did not say that. Um, uh, and I think that is what encouraged the markets and why they rallied uh, uh, on um, on Wednesday uh, because of, of that action. In other words, that he was not saying, you know, Joe, the stock market went up, the shouldn't have. You know, the bond market went up. It shouldn't have. Uh, I'm going to make sure that it goes down uh, sufficiently. Um, uh, that said, this this report by itself certainly points to two more 25 basis point increases. But I'll have to also say, you know, we have um, another six weeks until that data comes through. We're going to have another labor market report. We're going to have another a whole bunch of price reports. Um and so we're going to have a lot more uh, data. But uh, the clearly, um, we, we see no slowdown. And unless people are all wrong about what GDP is, or unless we get a much weaker February and uh, March uh, payroll number, um, at least this points to another plunge in productivity, which is not favorable. Well, that's going to be the, the topic of our discussion with Skanda here. And Skanda Amarnath, uh, I'm not sure if I'm getting your last name pronunciation, Skanda, so correct me if you want to there. I apologize if I'm, I'm completely off. But the professor has been talking about productivity. I know you've done a lot of research on productivity. Do you want to make an opening statement how you think things are going that we can get the professor to react to? Sure. So um, I, I, I caught some of what uh, the professor said on productivity, and I think it's worth highlighting a few things about our productivity estimates, right? So the way we calculate productivity is really just dividing two independent aggregates. So like real output, real GDP divided by total hours worked, right? It's not like a micro thing that we're looking at productivity business by business or firm by firm, establishment by establishment. And because of that, there's a weirdness that comes up every time we have a recession, or at least the last four recessions. Productivity data can actually spike because of recessions. And we saw this in 2020. The productivity data spiked because effectively jobs were cut faster than output itself as measured by GDP um, collapsed. They both collapsed, but there was a much more disproportionate effect on hours worked. And so we had this huge productivity spike, a positive spike. Um, we saw this also in 2008 and 9 during the Great Recession and uh, the financial crisis. What tends to happen in recoveries when you're bringing the jobs back is that you tend to see productivity growth slows down. Right. So you tend to see that as we as we had that job growth was a trickle during the recovery from the Great Recession. And it took a long time to get probably most of the jobs back this time around. 
Um, it's pretty quick, I'd say. Um, and I think it's been virtually complete. Maybe you can put point to pockets where things could improve. But by and large, prime age employment, the people who really are most critical in terms of labor supply, that those employment levels and employment rates have largely recovered. Um, and so we've had this, if you look through the cycle, I, 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 that's why I say through the cycle, if you go from pre-recession peak to like the point of recovery and you look at productivity, right now we actually have a one, like annualized productivity growth or um, whether you look at it on different metrics, you're looking at something about 1.7% right now as of Q4. If you look at that the Great Recession and the really sluggish recovery out of that, the almost decade-long recovery, that was 0.9%. And so I think there's a little bit of perspective. Yes, the productivity numbers were disappointing in 2022, but there's also in the context of absorbing a lot of hours lost. I think something people tend to think is mechanically connected where an hour worked con- contributes to today's output. Oftentimes, an hour worked today is contributing to future output more so than current output. At least that's how, the G- how GDP is measured. Um, there are some time alignment issues. So you've got to have to look at a little bit, some way of looking through the cycle. I think there's like, a, I don't want to get super optimistic or try to lead people astray here and say that there's definitely like a new productivity boom afoot. But it is, I'd say on average, at least mildly encouraging. Um, and there are places where output has disappointed, where there's room for catch-up, I'd say, where there's room for output to outperform. I'll, say, I'll point to two very big categories that really matter, and that's stuff related to like global services exports. Services exports have been disappointing through much of the um, period since like March 2020, uh, April 2020, and you know why that's been disappointing? primarily due to the pandemic and what it's meant for global air travel. So we typically see, we see travel services and um, air transportation services in terms of what, let's call it, foreign consumers are buying from U.S. Product, US production of those services. Um, that fell off a cliff. It's taken time for it to recover. Yes, I'd say the pandemic and its effects on the U.S. economy domestically has dissipated um, by now. But globally, there's like obviously China's reopening. A lot of those tailwinds have yet to really materialize. And that's been, that's probably disproportionately hamstrung output relative to employment. So there's like some, some sources of further tailwinds there. The other big place. Could I I just interrupt for a second? uh, Some interesting data you're putting out. The, the productivity of the first two quarters of last year. Yep. Were by far the worst two quarter productivities in history since quarterly productivity came out in 1947. I mean, it blew the roof off on how bad that was. Yeah. Do do you have any in now? It it did recover in the second half of the the year. It was, it was decent, but the whole year was terrible. I mean, one of the worst, Um, but the first two quarters, uh, I think doubled the previous two consecutive quarter lows. Do you, do you have any insights, into why that happened, and then following up on what I was talking about, I mean, if the hours jumped three-tenths and we had 500,000, again, this is early in this quarter, but people are estimating GDP of one and a half to two. I mean, that, that is a, that's a productivity collapse of mammoth proportions. I think it might be too early to certainly uh, get all the, you know, all the data on this first quarter, but is that also concerning? But uh, what, what about the first two quarters of last year? Sure. Um, so obviously, the first two quarters of last year, we had negative GDP prints, right? We had negative GDP prints that seemed really weird in the context of a lot of other data that seemed fine, right? And so it was like, are we becoming less productive? Or is there something else afoot in terms of how the data is being measured? So I think, it's as you pointed out, I think GDP, obviously, yes, was disappointing last year. If you take them totality, we got a nice tailwind in the second half of the year, but GDP in the first half was soft. I'd say there's probably two explanations I'd give that are pretty salient, at least I check out if I look through the details of the data. One is there are different seasonal patterns that are kind of, at least how we're seasonally adjusting data is different. So industrial production was really strong in Q1 and Q2 of last year. And yet the actual, if we think about GDP, is also a production metric. And yet that did not show the same strength even in the goods component. So that tells me like if two data, data time series are supposed to tell you the same thing, but they're not, there's sometimes something quirky going on in terms of the adjustment. And I think if you looked at a, across the year, some of that smoothed out. So some of the, it wasn't as bad as it looked in H1. 
uh, in the first half of 2022. It probably is not quite as rosy as it looks in the second half of 2022. Uh, the other thing that actually also depressed Q1 and Q2 of last year was we had big hits to food and energy consumption, right? And that's not that surprising given the food and energy spike we saw in prices. If global um, supplies of food, agricultural inputs, agricultural products, and obviously energy products, and we're talking about not just oil, but natural gas, refined capacity. If those are, um, if those supply constraints are binding, that's obviously going to hamstring a lot of different types of production and the ability to pr- produce and consume uh, food and energy. That was a big drag on consumption, especially in Q2. So we had those two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. It just didn't coincide with a lot of other stuff that was looking a little more resilient um, in terms of thinking about employment, industrial production. So some of that just shook out in terms of flat out. It's, it's fair to say that, yes, productivity is soft in terms of 2022. I think part of it, as I said, I, I would put that in the bigger context of the, in the context of the recovery itself. Like, it, well, you, like you know, because, a lot of just following up, you know, when they came out with those minus 0.5 prints approximately first crew, uh, a lot of people said, oh, it's going to be revised away to positive. But when they went through and revised it, they didn't revise it away. Sure. It actually did say uh, positive. Um, on, on the energy front, we're now at oil that is less uh, in price than when uh, Russia invaded uh, the Ukraine. So shouldn't that go full circle on the energy coming back? I, um, I think I think it is a tailwind. You're right. I think, I think it probably is a little marginally a tailwind. We are not out of the woods on the food side. Food inflation is still really strong. But... I do agree, actually, that like, look, there are some things that were holding back output and consumption. Um, they're both kind of ultimately interconnected um, in the first half of last year. That should be a reason for some cautious optimism. Obviously, who knows how the Russian war, war is going to play out ultimately in its effect. Um, obviously, new shocks can emerge. But I actually, I, I think by that same reasoning, and you're right, if you take that reasoning at face value, it, it does suggest at least some kind of marginal tailwind if a lot of the energy side, uh, if, the, if the supply side of the energy equation looks more benign, or at least like not as aggressive as it was in February, March, April, May, June, um, I think that it, that does also bode favorably. Um, Let me also ask you: um, Is it a possibility? Uh, have you looked into this that the uh, the work from home movement? When people self-report hours, or or they're in a job that's you know, supposed to be putting in eight hours. Maybe they're not. Uh, is it is 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 uh, are, are we over reporting the hours um, that people are actually working contributed to the very very bad productivity performance of 2022? Um, is it harder now to, to 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 look at those hours? Is this anything that you you've looked into? Yeah, I, I tried to find ways to like see whether there are particular type parts of GDP that would be more sensitive to this. Think about like professional and business services. That might be something where if it's moving more towards work from home, you might see those types of consumption, those types of uh, investment activities that are related to it would actually see a little more of a drag. I, ca- I can't really say um, confidently that it's not having any effect. Like obviously hours worked has grown really fast. Um, across 2021 and 2022, um, in some ways, we, but it's like whether this is like uh, I, I'm I'm pretty skeptical. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Right? And I'll I'll say there's actually a place that's a really the there's a sleeping giant in terms of what is keeping output below where actually it really could potentially be, and I'd say that's in construction costs. And so the, what we see in terms of non-residential fixed investment and residential fixed investment for construction structures is that. The spending in those categories, the nominal spending, is actually pretty, is growing pretty steadily, or at least it's not declining. But the cost in those areas, at least it's measured by the Bureau of Economic Analysis and the, all the government still statistical agencies, is that the costs have just surged. And so the same dollar is not buying us as much. And so that's telling you some part of that cost structure and the supply chain associated with it, we are not doing, we're, we're not getting the same amount of construction output, real output, for the amount of dollars put in and the amount of hours worked, because I don't see that same declining output that we see on the... Yeah, haven't side. most of those come down, though? I mean, lumber prices, I, I hear, are down to pretty close to they were pre-COVID levels, and I, I, I don't know about the other items, but shouldn't that come full circle? 
I, 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 I agree, actually. I'm actually kind of puzzled by this in particular. So there's some things that get overweighted, like steel pipe and tubing. Um, and so steel costs have also come down. Steel prices have come down, but maybe there's a lag. Um, but it's actually very opaque because it's not actually clear that the BEA is trying to do a, hey, this is a, a specific type of construction. Let's look at the, the specific prices that are matched up to it. I think they're using like an all-purpose construction price indicator, but that all-purpose indicator may not be well calibrated. That's one, one part of it. It is true that it's like construction productivity problems structurally. I'm not sure that they are. Um, like, it does strike me that there is a disconnect between where everyone who's like, because construction establishments are still gr- growing employment, architectural and engineering firms are yeah. still growing employment, and yet we're not yeah. seeing the real output yeah. to go with it. There's a puzzle there. Scandal, let me also uh, and mention something else I mentioned. Uh, if you look at sick days, um, they did actually jump dramatically in the first quarter of last year. Yeah. Um, how does, is there an adjustment? I mean, you've gone into the weeds on this data uh, that the Bureau of Labor Statistics makes for sick days when they compute hours or, or not. Oh, that's a good question. I actually think this is not something that the Bureau of Labor Statistics does particularly well. Um, and I think we saw in Omicron, there was this huge spike in average hourly earnings but it, uh, around Omicron that was an artifact of um, sort of sick, sick hours and sick days um, sort of being slashed from the hours count. But obviously, like compensation, if it's kept steady throughout, will show up as a spike in average hourly earnings. So it actually took a couple months in that Omicron episode to kind of like, see through some of that noise. I think there are real problems with how we look at some of the wage data and how we look at some of the work week data that we get from the jobs jobs report because ultimately they are asking each establishment what what's the total dollars you spent on your payroll yeah how many people are employed and how many total hours are worked but obviously like little composition changes like because of sick days do they do yeah sick days I mean can, sick days really, really jumped jump the, the first two quarters but they went back to normal by the fourth quarter. So, um, and again, productivity was decent in the fourth quarter, but let's face it, the whole year was bad, but minus one and a half percent, I believe, Um, which is, uh, you know, since long-term productivity growth is in the two neighborhood, as you yourself mentioned, that's still way below um, um, that level. Can I I just mention one quick thing there? Like we could have said in like 2009, 10, 11, that if you look at productivity growth relative to the great, like the 2007 period, right? We could have said, oh, there's this big productivity boom. But I think one thing that got, got like missed with it was like, obviously like there was a huge loss of employment that's just not showing up in current GDP. And we kind of paid the price for it in future years because we didn't bring those jobs back as quickly. And so what we were left with was really sluggish productivity growth, really less than a percent. If you look from 2007 to 2018, 19, like productivity averaged, less than a percent. Um, mm-hmm. Now, like, it's a part, there's, a, there's a part of it, like, tw- there was going to be a year of give back after a surge in productivity in 2020. Like, if you look at 2020, the productivity estimates just zoom up. And it's mostly an artifact of, like, lockdown, shutdown, um, businesses closing, laying off their workers, and put, and they're, them going on, like, no longer working. That, like, can affect the ratio of output to employment. But it's kind of a it's, it's a it's a fugazi uh, it's, a, it's a fake uh, kind of um, yeah. uh, productivity gain. So we're kind of getting some of the some of the 2022 stuff needs to be contextualized as like there was some give back from that surge. But the good news is at least we've now gone to employment back to where it was 2019. Well, it was better. a lot of it was a lot of give back of the surge. Well, one it, thing we can say though, I mean, the hope a lot of people thought this would. The, the the pandemic by allowing work from home and efficient Zoom and all that would actually bring about a longer term jump in productivity from its long run average. That doesn't seem to have happened. Would you agree on that? Oh, I I, I, w- I was always pretty skeptical, and I think that's probably right to say. Like, if you're hoping that work from home is going to un- usher in on its own some big uh, productivity change. I don't think that that's particularly compelling or borne out in the data itself. I think the places, what I would, I would just say is like there is, the, the good news is we haven't given back all of the productivity gains that, we, that, was, that was initially visible in 2020, right? Like in a recession, you get a big jump in productivity for the wrong reasons, and typically those retrace. And they more than retrace in the last recession. 
in this re- past recession, um, they haven't fully retraced. And if you look at it on a through the cycle basis, we have seen faster productivity growth in this recovery than in the pretty, I mean, not that we should really be aspiring to, just, that it'd be low, low standards to be trying to do better in the Great Recession, but um, at least productivity is r- running right now through the cycle, 1.7%, I'd say. I think that's a better context to give. But that said, like, look, who knows what the next year is going to give in terms of real output. I think there are some good signs that that real output can actually do better. We don't know really what the real GDP data for Q1 is going to track at. Um, auto sales will be our first input. Um, it looks like auto sales will be decent. Um, but there's other things that still they'll come, come into the fold. We're seeing some okay. cap, CapEx on the transportation side that's probably going to be better. It's like Boeing or aircraft orders are looking strong. Is it going to filter through to the whole of fixed investment? That's like the, the big question for 2022. I, I, do, I do have to go off. I found your, your research to be very interesting. So, you know, basically summarizing is that, you know, um, we had a big surge in 2020 during the COVID where it's, it's payback time. And yep. uh, we're actually not paying it back as fast as we did following the financial crisis. That's, that's one of your points. Um, uh, even though, uh, you know, the first two quarters of last year, the worst first two consecutive quarters that we ever had, <laughs> um, it seems like everything gets telescoped uh, in. Um, yep. Well, we can all hope for an impro- improvement in, in productivity. And, uh, Jeremy, I'm going to hand it to you to continue um, uh, talking with Skanda. And uh, uh, thank you for uh, your information. Professor, I knew you've been yeah. saying people have been not focused on this productivity question. I knew you would enjoy some of this conversation. I appreciate yeah. sticking with us, even though you have an obligation. Thank you for, for sticking with us. Skanda, we jumped right in with the professor in the first half of the show. Didn't quite give you a full introduction to your background. Uh, I knew he had an obligation he had to get to, but but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, Employ America, what you do there, and, and uh, obviously you're focused a lot on the economy, but uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Skanda Amarnath. I'm the executive director of Employ America. Uh, we are a macroeconomic research and advocacy organization. So we're really focused on the macroeconomic levers that are pretty important for maintaining um, strong labor market outcomes. So hopefully high employment, rising employment, better wages, um, and making sure that's a sustainable process over time. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to be on with you. Have you, what, what were, where were you before there? Were you there? Had that been your, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure, sure. So we, we uh, our organization started in 20, launched in 2019. Before that, I worked at a macroeconomic hedge fund, a macro hedge fund, in um, uh, for four years. Uh, prior to uh, MKP Capital Management. Uh, prior to that, I was at the New York Fed for a couple of years as a working in the research group there. And so that my my career has been different. It allowed me to see different perspectives uh, regarding the macro economy, from the policy side to something a little bit more on the academic and um, sort of central bank side, and then also obviously in the private sector. So you got the Fed and the market's reaction, which we got a, a little bit from the professor on his view on the Fed and the market's reaction to it. As you look at that yourself, uh, as you think through the Fed policy, um, any any calls for the Fed this year, how you think they've been navigating through this crisis, um, what, what your outlook for when do you think a pivot can and should come? G- give us your take on the Fed first. Sure. So our approach is really oriented around, call it nominal labor income growth, and specifically about the trajectory of job growth and wage growth should be like pretty central to what the Fed should and shouldn't be about. If the Fed is trying to cram down inflation, but nominal income growth for in terms of job growth and wage growth is already terrible, like the Fed like, should probably constrain their um, sort of urge to just smash inflation at all costs. Um, if, gross, if, if labor incomes are growing robustly and there are inflationary pressures that are coinciding with it, I think the case is stronger on the case of tight thing. Um, that's been the case for probably the last uh, 12 to 15 months, especially after we got virtually all the jobs back from the um, so pandemic-induced recession. Uh, that That's that's more reasonable. But we're now getting to a point where job growth and wage growth are actually cooling, cooling on their own, cooling in contrast to what the Fed has really given credit for, because um, I think the Fed is pretty wedded to a Phillips curve view of the world in which um, higher unemployment is the only way you can tame wage growth and inflation. Um, 
we don't take that view. We think actually just look at the data, look at whether job growth and wage growth are actually where, where are they trending? And, and is this something that can be sustained? Is this moving back towards pre-pandemic conditions? I think we're seeing all the signs that it is. And the Fed really, I'd say they should probably take it meeting by meeting at this point, because the trajectory of the labor market, maybe it, we're in the midst of a reacceleration. Like today's numbers look pretty strong. Some of those numbers can be revised pretty heavily in a month or two. So let's, let's, let's make sure we don't like overreact or panic. But um, right now we're on a pretty solid trajectory. But if it does decelerate, Further from what we saw in Q3 and Q4, especially if you think about the wage side, we're seeing more signs of wage deceleration. And we're seeing that wage deceleration, thankfully, not happening amidst unemployment going up. If anything, unemployment has trended down a little bit. If we can keep that in terms of making sure unemployment can go down and some of the inflationary pressures that exist, especially on the price side because of consumer prices, that's that's an economy that's worth preserving and building upon. That's not an economy in which what the Fed's been projecting and intending, I'd argue, is to really risk a pretty um, costly recession, right? So if you think about the Fed saying, we want to get the unemployment rate up to 4.6% because that's what we think it takes to tame inflation. Well, we're seeing a lot of those decelerating price and wage pressures independent of the unemployment rate. So I think it's pretty, we're hoping to see the Fed take a little bit more flexible and open-minded view than what they think they have up until most recently reflected, which is a hard-nosed, we need to be tough at all costs. Let's not yeah. think about the collateral damage of uh, trying to inflict another recession on the economy. Yeah, that, that's something we, we've certainly been talking about on this show. The professor was aggressively calling for them to tighten in 2021, way before they, even in, as early in 2020, I mean, he thought they were way too loose and, and they weren't reflecting what was going on. And now he's been with big on the narrative of, hey, um, they inflation is really coming down. They really shouldn't be battling the worker. Um, he's made some comments about the workers not keeping up with inflation, that real wages, um, that they're not keeping up with this. I know you've published a little bit on this and we'll, we'll get into some of your team's work on real wages, but do you, th- do you think it's right policy? I mean, Powell talked about a supply shift in workers. Should he be trying to bring down wage growth if there's a supply shift? I think the when there are supply shifts and when you do have sectoral like reallocation, we're in workers are maybe moving between industries or there's just a lot more dynamism and turnover in the labor market as there is now. I think it's just, there's like many reasons for some caution, right? There's a lot of things that may seem like this is how the macroeconomy is working, but it actually isn't, right? It's important to have some humility, flexibility, appreciating the complexities and uncertainties of like our system, right? And not to think, oh, I've got to, that means I just need to go harder in terms of crushing wage growth than raising unemployment. Um, you need to have some flexibility. I think especially in the case of supply shocks and where, let's think about food and energy price shocks have been pretty severe for uh, American consumers. It's not the only prices that have increased, but they've definitely increased a lot. You're still seeing probably higher prices at the grocery store. Um, they really spiked, especially alongside the sort of Russian invasion of Ukraine. There was a lot of hoarding of agricultural supplies and inputs um, because Russia and Ukraine are pretty relevant to the global agricultural economy. Um, those price increases are real wage losses almost all the time, right? Because most people, most workers don't generally get their wages indexed to CPI. Um, they don't get the, they don't get to just automatically like have those real incomes be preserved against those shocks. So they've actually taken a hit in terms of their real purchasing power. I think if you're thinking about this coherently, if you take real income losses, you don't have as much room to spend in terms of uh, actually put more demand side pressure on inflation. And so if there are real wages are actually in decline or real wages are flat, that's actually a reason for the Fed to not try to like induce more pain or put more um, tightening into the system. By the same token, if real wages are increasing, the real purchasing power is growing. That does like mean there's probably a little more capacity for households to spend um, and in the future, right? So if I have, if my real purchasing power is going up, then maybe that's a scenario where you probably do want to lean a little bit against that in terms of how you look at inflation risks and the outlook, at least on the demand side. I think the fact that real, real wages are only now with gas prices coming down, we're probably going to see utility bills come down from this natural gas price shock. That only now are we seeing some real income recovery after a pretty, probably a pretty painful process for a lot of people who are seeing their food, energy, rent, um, a lot of the core non-discretionary items 
seeing price increases there are pretty painful for a lot of households, especially lower income households. And so they've taken a huge hit in terms of real incomes. It's not obvious to me the answer is for the Fed to be hiking rates um, to lean against that, especially if like what's really going to be the way in which those process, those policies work is if it causes a recession in the process. That doesn't strike me as like, you'll get inflation down, but you'll also lower a lot more people's standard of living in the process. Well, now you, one of the pieces you guys did is who is driving the labor shortage that we have recently? Well, and this is sort of this, you know, this lack of demand supply balance of workers that Powell's talking about. Talk through the research that you, you all did on the labor shortage issue itself here. Sure. So I think there's two parts of this, right? There's a macroeconomic discussion of labor shortages and there's a microeconomic labor, labor shortage. So I, I think there are pretty well-documented examples of microeconomic labor shortages. You see it in places like oil field services, construction. There's a lot of places where people, there was a time when I'd say trucking, may, may, there may have been a labor shortage there, truck drivers. Um, so those are things that are very real. They're worth thinking about, like, how do we avoid this or how do we at least try to make sure it's a smoother process? Um, those are jobs that are typically performed by people in their prime working years, 25 to 54. Then there is the macroeconomic discussion of labor shortage, which is where people look at sort of a headline labor force participation rate or an employment to population ratio, and they say, hey, this number is down versus pre-pandemic. Some, there must have been some key labor supply loss, and that labor supply loss must be the cause of inflation. If you do the right adjustments for age, most of that puzzle just disappears, which is to say the population is getting older. Uh, the, the places where people may have been a little less inclined to work are people who are especially over the age of 70. So they're already, they were already in their retirement years to begin with. Um, and they, and the jobs that were performing pre-pandemic were part-time jobs primarily. And so when we talk about part-time workers who are over the age of 70, that's typically not the kind of work that is be, like the linchpin of construction uh, labor or linchpin of oil field services. Those, those are things. Those those types of jobs um, are, tend to be things where you have, are pretty physically intensive. They obviously require its own set of skills, and it's also um, should worthy of our respect and um, thoughtfulness. But I, I think it's pretty fair to say that those jobs are not performed by people who, on a part time basis who are um, well into their retirement years. Uh, so I think this has been a bit of a distraction. To say, to say this, so that that labor short, and actually, if we take an age-adjusted view of the world in terms of like how are how is employment to population looking like within each age group, we've seen a pretty complete recovery in all the cohorts that I'd say really matter. So I'd think something around the twenty to sixty-four year old um, range, or maybe even twenty to sixty-nine year old range, we've seen employment rates largely recover to twenty nineteen levels. Some have hit their peaks uh, from twenty nineteen. Some are maybe a little bit shy of their peaks. But 2019 labor market, 2019 employment rates are pretty respectable, especially if we look over a longer history. Um, ideally, we can make further progress there. But I think it's like that's a, that's where there's a little bit of a it's a bit of a distraction to say, oh, there was this labor force participation is not there. What I suspect has really happened is that there were certain industries that were very uh, eager to hire and probably pulled away workers who may have otherwise been working in, say, if someone who is working in oil field services all of a sudden is working in retail or working in transportation and warehousing. Um, if you think about all the stuff that was related to the goods boom of 2021, they may have been they may have moved into those jobs because they pay better and maybe are a little bit um, less risky, and that might have pulled away workers from where they otherwise would have been, and um, they weren't being paid competitively. So those are like sectoral microeconomic challenges that are getting transformed into oh people don't want to work anymore, which I think is yeah just a, it's a bit of a canard. Right. In terms of what the aggregate impact for the Fed to think about that structural shift is, is is just that there's going to be less supply of that at the end. We're going to continue. I mean, the the, the structures we're old, we're aging, and we're going to continue to age for some time. Is that the bottom line conclusion that there's going to be less workers, and the Fed can't do much about that? But the politicians could. They could allow some immigration to try to offset that. But like, is that the the key issue for the Fed? Yeah, I think the Fed has largely misdiagnosed the nature of supply problems. I think they're looking for the supply problems in the wrong places. Um, by talking about this as if it's a labor issue in terms of employment levels, uh, look, it, we kind of always knew the population was aging. We kind of, I don't think the operation of our construction or energy sector is going to be, sh- should really be turning on 
um, how willing sort of people who are in their elderly retirement years are willing to work or able to work. Um, if that's really what we're like banking on, we have bigger problems. I think if we're trying to do more to, to draw in more labor, things like immigration may be worth looking at in terms of how to address that stuff. What I think the Fed's got to really understand is that there are there are real constraints of the economy, but those real constraints are oftentimes not about labor. So trying to cram down on la- the labor market because not every I think I think the the truism that they're trying to they're sort of taking on is that uh, every supply problem is a labor supply problem, but that's just not true. There's a lot of things that go into supply and production of, of output, whether you're talking about physical capacity, like equipment and factories. It's about imports. It's about inventories. It's about the, the physical, the physical world itself. You think about the automobile sector is a very good example of this automobile sector can't produce as many automobiles or it's only starting to recover now. And that's largely because they didn't have the inputs that were produced largely in, say, Taiwan or in Philippines and Malaysia as part of the semiconductor bottleneck. Uh, that's not necessarily a labor problem, right? Now, is it, w- there are other examples like this where it's like we don't have the physical inputs in place, but those physical inputs aren't always like driven by a labor problem itself. I think that's something that central banks have a tendency to really do and say every problem must be caused by labor. And that's that's obviously a little bit painfully bad for lots of people. Let me introduce our guest. We're talking with Skanda Amarnath, who is the executive director at Employ America, who's done a lot of interesting research on the economy. Skanda, it's let's go back to a piece that your your firm or group put out on real wages uh, and how the look at real wages when you just look at some of the data can be misleading. What does it say? Uh, are we falling behind? You know, we Siegel's narrative is, hey, we've been falling behind. The workers are trying to catch up. They're falling behind inflation. Don't crush them. You create inflation. Don't crush them. What does your alternative look at real wages show uh, and, 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 w- and what the core issue is there? Yeah, look, I think there are a few things that have like obviously hurt. It depends on I, the first thing I'd say is it depends on the measure you're using, just how bad or not bad it ultimately looks in terms of real wages. I think what we can say with confidence is that inflation it's kind of materialized over the last 18 months in some key categories that a lot of Americans face, and it's pretty painful and injects a lot of uncertainty. Um, the challenge is like which price index do you use, which wage index do you use, and if you put those two things together, are you getting a fair result? And this is something you can bicker around a lot. And you probably could have gotten much different answers in 2021. But I think in 2022, the answers were pretty consistent that this was pretty bad, especially until gas prices peaked. Um, and, the re- and, and the reason for that is food and energy are, can be really volatile prices. And those really volatile prices are painful real, in- real wage losses. Um, there are a lot of different ways to think about it. I don't think necessarily just dividing some some wage metric of your choice divided by some price metric of your choice. Like, just there's a tendency to, to just cherry pick that information, and it's not always helpful. I think we can just speak very clearly about the fact that there were there are food price shocks that Americans faced. There were energy price shocks that Americans faced, um, and it wasn't just about ga- gasoline. It was about what you paid at the grocery store if you ever went out to eat. If you if you actually went to um, if you if you if you rely on natural gas for your heat not just your heating but your electricity and then there's obviously a host of other inputs that get, oil and gas are relevant for so we should be really cognizant of that aspect of how it's really affected standard of living and I'd say on on the one hand it's great that well, there's some things that probably real wages misses in terms of we had a really surging jobs recovery and so for people who are earning zero income to earning some income. That is a sort of huge nonlinear. Um, it's just going from zero to one. You're actually starting to earn some income, and that, that that's a pretty big standard of living improvement. But it's still for the majority of Americans who may have otherwise been employed beforehand. Um, like that's a big loss in terms of standard of living, and we should be pretty cognizant of it. But it's also not the kind of thing that the Fed's easily going to solve. Like I think we should be very, and the Fed implicitly like recognizes their ability to influence food and energy prices is pretty limited, at least not without causing a recession in the process. That's why they use core inflation. That's why they do use that stuff. It's not that the Fed doesn't care about that stuff either, but it's that they feel they have a more tenuous impact on those prices. If that's the case, right, that's kind of something where we do need to be careful about trying to say that because like there's um, inflation in, in the economy, that it necessarily requires we cram down on 
people's existing paychecks for their job in terms of job growth or wage growth. Like there's some amount of slowdown that is warranted and, and acceptable, but outright job losses is pretty painful and terrible for a lot of people too. And I think the Fed has a risk losing that plot if they start to talk so much about how the unemployment rate is just so low and we need to get the unemployment rate up to four and a half, five percent, um, because that's playing with fire. Um, the real wage declines that occurred, especially in the first half of last year, were um, already eroding people's purchasing power. It already erodes real demand. Real demand for consumption, real demand to spend in the future is diminished when prices go up. Um, so in some cases, when prices go up, but wages don't go up correspondingly, um, that is already removing some level of potential demand from the system. Um, it's not a great way to, it's not, not ideal or not great, but that's also how some market economies work in some sense. And so we should be, given that fact, the case for Fed tightening um, should be shaded down, at least marginally. So Alex Williams at your group did this thing on the aggregation of of sort of real wages, and he talked about household sort of wealth going up also yep. sort of contradicting some of this real wage discussion. And anything you want to say about that that piece? Sure. I, th- I think there's a, there's a lot of different problems that kind of get missed with these sort of real wage metrics, on, especially because what they are at, they're taking aggregates. They take a an average across the economy income, nominal income or nominal wage, and, an, and taking some average price basket. But there's, there's a problem with that, right? Because um, it does miss that we're not actually observing what real wages like at the micro, at the specific household level looks like. And what you know is there are a lot of distributional challenges that exist on both sides. Um, not A poor person does not consume the same basket that a, a wealthier person does. And this is another key there's some other key missing facts, which include, like, we did a lot of more generous fiscal transfers in 2020 and 2021 that are not being counted in real wage metrics, right? So if, you're, if you were not earning any labor income, you still were able to earn some cash transfer, whether that's through unemployment insurance or even just the stimulus payments that were direct checks, right, the direct payments. Those fiscal transfers are also buttressing people's purchasing power in a way that gets lost in some of these real wage metrics. Um, and so we do need to, like, inflation looks different across the distribution, and so does, like, income gains and wealth gains, especially liquid wealth. And so what we find in a lot of the private sector data on sort of how much cash, what do cash balances look like across the distribution? Now, they've come down a bit, um, and they're, but they are still above pre-pandemic levels, specifically across the distribution, but more importantly for those who are of least means. So people who tend to have the lowest cash balances on average saw a pretty big bump up especially around uh, 2020 and 2021. And that's like worth appreciating because if inflation is causing uncertainty in some ways, the fact that they, they were at least have some fiscal transfer um, cushion to, bend, to, to work off of, um, like that, 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 is a, that is a kind of welfare gain or cushion that is at least helpful at the margin. Let's try to bring some of this big macro back to your hedge fund days, Skanda, uh, and say, all right, sure. so we've talked a lot about the the productivity the the and all these issues how do you think this is all going to play out in markets to rates you know what the fed's going to do give us your general outlook for markets from all this uh macro yeah i i, I we're we're not a market facing firm direct indirectly in any sense but I, I obviously we pay attention to what's going on and i think it's uh, there's, there are two ways that there are two ways to split this out, right? One is like what is actually going to mean for the macro economy right now, and I think there are reasons to believe in resilience, right? There's reasons to believe that actually the labor market can stay strong, like we saw in some of the jobs report numbers today. As I said, I'd caution some of that stuff can get revised out over the next coming months, especially some of the seasonal adjustment issues. There are some, some challenges there, but I think the, I think the report was still kind of unequivocally strong. Um, so we're growing jobs and incomes at a reasonably strong pace. And that obviously means there's some room for, the, for, for households who earn income. They can also spend income. And that means that the outlook for even consumer spending could even be better, especially as more supply is available in some key categories. I think about transportation, um, uh, transportation services, like, like airfares and um, air, air, air travel, but also in terms of like, if you want to buy an automobile or if you want to buy durable goods tied to home improvement, 
Um, those might see some additional relief in terms of real consumer spending. And that's, that could be beneficial to the consumer. It could also be beneficial to um, the number of firms who are providing those goods or services. The other side is the policy side. And I think that's the part that makes me really worried because the, the Fed, we are intrinsically going to be worried about the Fed going too far, right? And I think the Fed, maybe markets are reading that the Fed is actually more open to a soft landing from Jay Powell's press conference. I think the some of that might be wish casting, I, I, I suspect, but um, maybe Powell sounded a little bit marginally more open-minded than um, he did in December. And I think the, the real risk is that the Fed doesn't says we have to get, they, they, they bring out the same 1999-2000 playbook where they said wage growth is too hot relative to productivity growth. And so our job is to get unemployment rate up so that wage growth goes down. That is how the Fed thought about it then. And the Fed's thinking about it pretty similarly now. The challenge is, like, one, productivity growth can change over time, right? That's one thing we talked about earlier. Uh, but also, like, wage growth is not something that is easily governed by unemployment, nor is wage growth so easily connected to, to inflation itself. Um, I think it's, like, pretty challenging to have a situation where you have a wage growth um, already defying the unemployment rate. Wage growth is currently declining, even though the unemployment rate um, has gone down further. This is something I think most people who don't believe in the Phillips curve, which is sort of the central bank, I don't know, so for some people it's like a law and saying we have to have only a certain amount of people who are in jobs and otherwise they have to be jobless. I think that's kind of a pretty cruel and needless uh, way to think about the world, world, but it is something the Fed kind of, there's definitely some part of the Fed that believes in this. Um, and that's dangerous, right? The Fed could say it's 3.4% unemployment, that's too low, it's going to lead to too much wage growth, and so we got to we got to fight back against it. We got to tighten further. There may, but the data on the wage side is defying that, and I think that's some reason for encouragement that the Fed may not take it too far. There's a second part of it that I suspect, for the time being, we have. Uh, I think we probably have a little more inflationary. There's some inflationary upside that potential, especially in the first quarter of this year. This is the time of year when businesses will tend to review their prices and raise them. Uh, if they're going to raise prices, they'll raise them in Q1 more aggressively. And I think there's some seasonal dynamics yep. like that that can really amplify inflation in the short run. So I we worry gotta, about that. We got to wrap. We are out of time, Skanda. Uh, this has been a fun conversation. We've, we've been having Skanda Amarnath, who's executive director at Employ America. It was a great conversation on the economy. You can listen to us every week under Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 